This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Today marks World Cancer Day and we are in a moment where the pandemic is disrupting cancer diagnosis and treatment. This is making a difficult experience even tougher, more stressful and dangerous for patients, caregivers and the medical professionals who treat them. Screenings are down and so is the number of new diagnoses. Those are down 25, even 30% in some specialties. It means patients will present when their disease is more advanced and harder to treat. A late poll for the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network finds that 55% of respondents reported their appointments, tests, and treatments have been cancelled or postponed. Uh, these patients had to wait an average of 34 days to reschedule cancelled or postponed in-person appointments and 52 days to reschedule surgery and other procedures. Now, surgeries and other procedures that have been deemed urgent have been going ahead as scheduled. But when it comes to cancer, elective or non-urgent is really a relative thing. So uh, we'd like to hear from you about your experience or with a loved one or a friend. Has this impacted you? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to bring in Dr. Aaron Schimmer, Director at the Research Institute of Princess Margaret Cancer Center and a physician in hematology oncology. Dr. Stephen Gallinger, clinician scientist and surgical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center and Conrad Eder, public policy analyst at the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, good to be there with you. Thank you. Nice talking to you again, Libby. Nice, nice talking to you. Um, let's begin with Dr. Shimmer. So my understanding is that uh, sometime in, in the summer, things were beginning to get back on track uh, and that chemotherapy and radiation is going ahead as normal at Princess Margaret, but, but surgeries, which are done at, at Toronto General, um, are starting to be postponed. Is that correct? So if you actually go back even to the first wave, that in the period of March, April, May, there were significant decreases in the amounts of treatment given as we prioritize resources, staffing PPE to care for the urgent increase in number of COVID patients. And you're right that we started to catch up a little bit in the summer as the uh, number of COVID cases declined. But again, with this rising in second wave, that, you know, the, there was a need again to prioritize available beds, staffing, et cetera, to care for the rising COVID patients. And that caused a decline in the number of surgeries that could be offered, almost, that these were really uh, on the more elective side. And cancer surgeries, which although in some cases were impacted, it was less so than other areas. But look, having said that, if you're the patient who's been impacted, this is by no means a good situation and causes, at the very least, a fair bit of distress for people being affected. I can tell you, no one wants to have to be in a position to delay surgery, least of all surgeons like Dr. Gallinger. Uh, right. What about uh, chemo radiation? Are they on track or also uh, with delays? So, so we saw in the first wave that chemotherapy was being modified in certain cases as we don't think we understood then the virus transmission as we did and patients on chemotherapy who could contract COVID would have much worse outcomes. And so in some cases, we modified chemotherapy regimens 
concerned about what might be happening in terms of the virus. In general, uh, although there in the first wave was some impact, we've not seen that same degree of impact in the second wave. Of, we've been able to preserve staffing and resource levels to provide, in almost all cases, on-time and on-protocol treatment. You know, we recognize that this is clearly a, a, a critical priority for all of our cancer patients. We've got to keep them on track with their therapy. Dr. Gallinger, you specialize in pancreatic cancer, among other things, and I would think that everything to do with that very deadly disease, which uh, I had, is is urgent. Yeah, I, I think Garen uh, explained it all really well, and I would just emphasize that we're kind of learning on the job. This is a new experience for all of us, um, so we're trying to keep up with all the pressures, either from the public, from public health, and then uh, you know the optics of delaying versus the, the scientific evidence for what matters. And so it very much has been a moving target, certainly in the f- spring when there was, I would say, mass panic. Uh, you know, we convened meetings and tried to figure out how we're going to prioritize patients, especially those with pancreatic cancer. And we were even considering and did consider and actually treated a few patients with chemotherapy first. Uh, we want we look carefully at the evidence, uh, and there is there are controversies in managing pancreas cancer and all cancers. So we tried to adapt and be as nimble as we could, and we actually treated a few patients with chemotherapy first, and then surgery later. But this may actually even be better. So there are a few uh, even benefits from this experience because we're learning alternative ways to treat patients that may be as effective or even more effective. We then. Um, I think all the all the hospitals in Ontario then quickly realize that uh, urgent cancer surgery, like pancreas cancer surgery and others, has to go on essentially. So, unfortunately, at the expense of other surgery, a lot of elective orthopedic surgery, for example, has been postponed uh, for a year and it may even be longer. But the bottom line is, most of the urgent cancer surgery is being done. The system, it's it's a clunky system. We can't see patients in person the way we used to, and that obviously impacts the relationship with patients, uh, their ability to ask questions and have them answered properly. But we're doing COVID tests on everybody that comes in for elective surgery. So it's been, it's been painful and clunky, but I think cancer surgery for the most part uh, has been done uh, pretty much on time. And certainly the, the most urgent cases, like you mentioned, pancreas cancer are getting done. So uh, just before I move on to Conrad, have you been doing the same number of operations that you normally do? Uh, Personally, pretty much yes. And my colleagues here at PMH UHN, for the most part, yes. And I think across the province, uh, you know, because we talk to each other and actually we're trying to work as a big group to try to move patients around if necessary. Yes, I think some of the, the community hospitals, not the academic hospitals, have been hit very hard with COVID and that may have impacted some of their cancerous, cancer surgery. I think the ministry and Ontario Health will have to look at this soon if they're not already and we'll have to see if there was impact. As you mentioned in, in your introduction, I think screening um, and even appointments for scans and having cert, having tests done that may seem fairly minor, those have been delayed and we are seeing and probably will see an impact. I heard this morning on World Cancer Day that uh, there's at least a 5% increase in the uh, worsening of stages of diagnoses and that will impact uh, outcomes for sure for the next few years. Hmm. Conrad, uh, how is this impacting patients? Well, as was alluded to, the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network, we're very pleased to partner with Leger to do this national survey. And we've been able to take a tremendous wealth of information, both from how the pandemic is impacting patients from a physical, but also an emotional standpoint. And in particular, when we talk about the anxiety related with a cancer diagnosis, it's only been increased as a result of many of the delays that cancer patients, their caregivers, and also pre-diagnosis patients, those that are currently undergoing tests to determine if they have cancer, have been suffering through. For example, our survey found that of those we spoke to, 72% reported that the delays are having a major impact on their mental health. Now, as I mentioned, we know that Canadians are already struggling with their mental health as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, and this has only further exacerbated the condition for cancer patients across the country. You know, it's interesting. I remember the first time I was diagnosed with cancer, I mean, the only immediate thing was 
get this thing out of me yesterday. And I'm sure a lot of people feel like that. Dr. Shimmer, what constitutes elective surgery when it comes to cancer? I think you're absolutely right that people, when they have a diagnosis of cancer that would involve surgical treatment, that they want it as fast as possible. Now, look, scientifically, we know that the way that cancer grows and the speed at which it grows, if you wait a day, two days, three days, and sometimes you know, a week or more, that statistically, that doesn't change outcomes. But th- that fails to recognize the emotional impact that the delay has. And, and, and that's as equally part of the issue, the problem of delays, than maybe the scientific facts of could you actually wait that extra week. Uh, yeah. Uh, what about the benchmarks? I, I know there are benchmarks for how long between a diagnosis and a surgery for, for different operations. Uh, are you meeting the benchmarks? So so there are a number of benchmarks set. And uh, so uh, Cancer Care Ontario, for example, which is a provincial uh, organization that tracks a variety of metrics in cancer, wait times, time to treatment, etc. And they, you're right, they, they define optimal times from diagnosis to treatment. And when there are delays, such as in COVID, you can start to exceed those uh, optimal wait times. Now, wherever possible, you know, uh, we are not trying to delay people beyond those optimal times. And, and, And to be honest, there are very few cases where that happens. But sure, one case is far too many. Right. And uh, I'm assuming that it's it's one thing at, at Princess Margaret in Toronto, and it's very different thing in other places. Well, we're, we're very fortunate at Princess Margaret to have such a world-class facility and world-class staff. You know, and, and I would say this in the community, too. I mean, people are bending over backwards and running flat out to provide the care for the patients with cancer, in addition to everything they're doing for COVID. Uh, but, you know, w- when you're at a, a facility like Princess Margaret, look, we're, we're, we're quite fortunate, you know, Dr. Gallinger and I, t- to be in a type of environment like this. But look, that, not to think that you can't get good care at these other centers. They have excellent physicians and surgeons as well. Dr. Gallinger, how has it changed uh, the the way the, your patients are, I, I mean, I would imagine that they're pretty anxious to mm-hmm. begin with. And full disclosure here, Dr. Gallinger mm-hmm. is my doctor and did my surgery. Um, so how has that changed the whole process and how have they changed? It's a, it's a great question. And I, you know, it goes beyond medicine. It goes into every part of our lives. I'm sure you're interviewing other people. And, and you know, there's been some benefits. It's hard to imagine benefits during a pandemic, but I think in terms of medicine, we've become more efficient. Uh, we see that some of our activities and routines and processes probably were not that great, having patients waiting, you know, for four or five hours for a routine 10-minute follow-up appointment. At yeah, Princess I remember Market. that. You remember those? And uh, so, you know, those were eliminated immediately. We developed the informatics groups developed online resources for us to uh, plan a, to meet patients uh, visually or virtually. Uh, that's been quite effective. And um, follow-up has been streamlined and ordering CT scans. So I think those benefits, those are real. And patients I've spoken to, many, many patients on the phone, are actually happy not to come in for a routine follow-up. However, there are definite uh, major drawbacks in terms of uh, developing these processes very quickly, which we had to do literally overnight with a lot of, um, uh, requires a lot of uh, nimbleness in terms of, and people's tolerance for change, which is not always that easy. In terms of patients, I agree with the previous, uh, the other two uh, people on this panel who are talking about the anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety, new anxiety, even not being able to see a person. And sometimes the video calls don't work. People don't have laptops that work. They don't have good internet. They're in remote communities and don't understand uh, what we're asking them to do to see us online and the appointment gets canceled and missed. So there's been, a, there's been quite a few problems and that just generates more and more, and more anxiety. I, I think we've learned a lot. I mean, we all have in society and I think there will be some benefits that we all take away. Uh, some of us like working from home. Some of us do not. 
uh, I feel particularly, you know, sensitive to nurses that are here at the hospital 12 hours a day wearing masks, and now they're talking about wearing double two masks. So there's been a huge impact, and most of it, you know, you read about online to see on the news, but, you know, medical community has adapted as best as we could. But uh, there are a lot of problems with burnout and fatigue, and people have quit the professions uh, very rapidly. They use this as an opportunity just to kind of hang it up. So we'll see what happens over the next uh, few months. I mean, I'm optimistic that we get our vaccine uh, distribution in order, and hopefully the summer will be a lot better. Well, uh, I, I hate to say this, but we just learned in our 12 o'clock news that's yet another delay with uh, the shipments of the Moderna vaccine yeah. uh, or a cutback. Uh, Conrad Eder, how much of this, uh, I remember back in the first wave, certainly with things other than cancer, it wasn't just an issue that that uh, the facilities were canceling or postponing appointments, but it was patients themselves who were afraid to go to the hospital. Absolutely. And it's important that you raise that particular point. We know that in the first wave of the pandemic, there was a tremendous amount of anxiety and concern on the part of cancer patients, caregivers, and pre-diagnosis patients when it came to interacting with the healthcare system. One positive, and this is an extremely good statistic to, to reference, that did come out of our now second COVID-19 and cancer care survey is that we've seen a reduction in the percentage, percentage of patients who have reported canceling or postponing their own appointments. And we've also seen an increase in the number of patients who have reported interacting with their healthcare teams. This is such an important message to get out right now to the public that cancer simply can't wait. And one of the reasons that motivated the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network to speak out about this topic and to initiate this survey is because we need to get our message out to the public that whether through in-person or virtual channels, cancer can't wait. And you need to be consulting with your healthcare teams, whether that's resuming a treatment that was paused or following up on a routine scan that perhaps you put off out of anxiety related to COVID-19. Well, um, a lot of those routine scans were put off. Uh, they, I've resumed. I mean, mine, I, I was supposed to do it in April. Instead, I did it in July, but it was routine. I had absolutely no issue and it would have been okay waiting longer than that. Uh, but uh, Dr. Shimmer, I mean, it, it seems that that the front end, uh, which is where you will catch cancers, that seems to almost be the, the most impacted. Right. So, and it comes back to one of your initial points that says that the diagnosis of new cancers is down. And, you know, because we track this, we actually measure the number of new cases. Going back for many years, we can tell you the total per year, the total per month, even the total per week. And we knew that in that second wave, the number of fallen. And why is that? It's because that people weren't going for those scanning appointments. And as, as the other panelists have said, look, it is safe to go. We take abundant precautions for our patients, for our staff, that if you have a scheduled scan, if you have a scheduled screening test, please go for it. It, it is so critical. Yeah, and you know, with the changes you were talking about, Dr. Gallinger, I remember hearing a presentation. I'm I'm trying to think. It was around Christmas time before the pandemic hit, and it was from a, a young doctor from Princess Margaret who was already coming up with a model for uh, follow-ups to treatment that included a lot of virtual things. And, and uh, I can also say from experience that, yes, there are lots of times when you don't want to drag yourself into the hospital and sit there for hours. I, I, mean, as, I mean, your experience is the same as many other people. And like, I've often wondered myself, but, you know, we, we sort of adopt this culture Filthy paternalistic culture where we, you know, make line people up in a waiting room all day to see their doctor, and that's the way it's always been. So that's the way we'll continue. We're we're a little slow to adapt to change, I think, in in the medical community sometimes. So, like I said, if anything, this was a, a good wake up call, uh, and and things will never be the same. You know, we've we've developed, and other hospitals have developed uh, nice, pretty good IT systems to, to track patients to arrange uh, visits without in, without the in-person or other forms of communication, even emails. So um, I, I think there has been, there there is this positive uh, 
impact on on all aspects of society and people I think are valuing other things that we never used to a lot of it's related just to time and uh, the efficiencies of our systems so there's been a, a lot of change and you can see that uh, in some of the benefits of having to experience what we're all experiencing obviously there's been tremendous negative effects as are obvious but I think I think you're right. I don't think I'll ever be seeing you uh, in person at Princess Margaret ever again unless we really need to. And as long as you're happy with a phone call, I'm happy with a phone call. Okay, or an email. <laughs> or an email, yeah. <laughs> we can have a coffee. Yeah. Uh, so, um, Conrad Edder, uh, so how are patients adapting to this? Uh, you know, again, this the the idea of more online. Mm-hmm. Adaption is a good word, uh, and to be fair, through the survey and through the numerous conversations that I've had with patients across the country, we see some pros and cons to all the approaches that we take. As my panelists indicated, the healthcare system and healthcare professionals have done a fantastic job of offering more choice, and that's something that I want to emphasize as being so important. And from the perspective of the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network, we want to ensure that there's choice for patients to engage with the healthcare system in a way that's most convenient for them. We know since the first wave of the pandemic, more virtual consultations have taken place and more in-person consultations have taken place as well. And in both cases, we asked patients how satisfied they were. Now, we found that overall, patients were generally more satisfied with in-person visits, but not too far behind. Patients also reported a high degree of satisfaction with telephone consults and virtual consults taking place uh, over various platforms. So we see this as a positive. We want more choice for patients so that they can best interact with the healthcare system. Okay, I'm going to give the numbers out again uh, in case there are people out there who have comments or questions if you've been affected by this or perhaps a loved one has. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I am talking to Dr. Aaron Schimmer, Dr. Stephen Gallinger, and Conrad Etter about the impact COVID has had on cancer care, and it has disrupted things. That uh, There's no way around that. The number of diagnoses has gone down, and uh, there's a new number in this survey that says 5% increase in advanced cancers, uh, which is possibly the result for that drop in screening, not catching things early. Uh, so, um, yep. Yeah. But it has also brought some kinds of innovations in the way that cancer care is delivered. And we've all been hearing for years that really the only way out of, uh, the only way forward with, with, uh, uh, our older population and exploding healthcare needs and, and a tight system is going to be with more technology. Uh, so Dr. Aaron Schimmer, uh, I also wanted to ask, in terms of staff being infected, how uh, was that working out? Do you have many staff that that caught COVID? So there unfortunately have been some, and certainly in some cases that this was acquired in the community. Our healthcare professionals are in the community like anyone else. We've had, unfortunately, a few cases where the, the transmission occurred uh, from in hospital setting, either from other staff where they've acquired it or from patients, you know, in, in each and every case is, is one case too many. We, we don't want any cases being transmitted. But what I, I can say is that the numbers are very, very low, uh, that relative to the number of COVID patients that have been looked after, relative to the number of staff that we have, both in our hospital, if you think across the hospitals, the number is low. Universal Health Network is 25,000 people who are employed by the organization. And so when you look at the total number of cases, you know, the handfuls of, of people that have acquired it through other staff or patients, it, it's low. But again, I would say even one is too many. And uh, Dr. Gallinger, are you worried uh, about these new variants and delays in, in vaccine? I mean, uh, what we're hearing initially is that transmission is a lot quicker with these new variants. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm as worried as uh, the public health people are. You know, I watch the news and listen to radio and uh, try to understand, you know, trying to 
separate uh, the noise, you know, from the inf- real information. I think there, the increased transmissibility is real. The benefit of the vaccines is, seems pretty real too, especially if you look at experiences in high vaccinated countries like Israel and elsewhere. There seems to be a, a, a real rapid or seemingly rapid drop. So I think the vaccination piece is critical and I'm worried about our response here in Canada that you've alluded to. Um, so it, it's really a moving target. It's a bit of a race against the new variants transmitting, you know, transmitting themselves rapidly through our population while we're trying to vaccinate or get some kind of herd immunity at the same time. So I don't have anything brilliant to say. Yes, I am worried. I think the public health messaging about that are the simple public health maneuvers, you know, masking and lack of in, not having indoor gatherings are so obviously simple and important. If we really would adhere, adhering to them, I think uh, we'll be okay. Uh, for longer, but yeah, everybody has to kind of behave. But do you, do you worry personally? And I would think that this would be a factor contributing to burnout. Yeah, I think, well, burnout for sure. I mean, burnout is, uh, is impacted by all of this that we've talked about in terms of the actual, you know, my age group, yeah, I'm in my early sixties, so I'm, I'm more vulnerable, but on the other hand, I'm, it's easier to be more socially isolated. I think, you know, people with uh, sort of millennials or younger or those with young kids and they're struggling with, you know, all the aspects of uh, having their kids at home instead of at school. I think that that impact has been massive and I'm not even sure it's been totally appreciated. So it's very hard to know what the schools should be doing because I see both sides of the coin, the mental health of, of children not being able to get back to school versus, you know, the risk of bringing the virus or the new variants home. So, um, again, I think the vaccine effort probably will be the key, and let's hope that it gets better than it has been. Mm. <laughs> That's a whole other can of worms. I know. <laughs> I'm actually doing a TV show on the vaccine rollout uh, in a couple of hours. It's uh, don't get me started okay. is all I'll say. Um, we're uh, basically out of time on this. I'm going to give everybody a, 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 a last word to leave us with, starting with Conrad Eder. I would say just to conclude some of the concerns that have been shared with us as part of our national COVID-19 and cancer care survey, we want to make sure that decision makers both regionally and nationally appreciate the unique concerns that the cancer community has from coast to coast to coast. We applaud the efforts that health professionals have put in to help make healthcare more accessible and encourage them to continue to do the same. Finally, I would just note that it's our message from the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network that cancer can't wait. If you believe you may be experiencing the signs and symptoms of cancer, don't wait, get checked. Okay, and uh, Dr. Shiver, what would you like to leave us with? Well, maybe just a chance to thank all of my colleagues, my physicians, the nurses that we work with. I know how hard they're working to care for patients and really give a special shout out. We didn't talk about all the scientists and researchers who are really kind of a little bit behind the scenes who are also working tirelessly, not only on cancer research, but in many cases pivoted to COVID research, sometimes those behind the scenes heroes that are making such a difference. Okay. And Dr. Gallinger. I I have nothing uh, other than what's been said, but I also would just emphasize we haven't talked about it, the lack of... Our inability to do research the way we want to, especially clinical research, and I'm hoping uh, government agencies recognize that uh, cancer is still here and we still have to you know, keep the research enterprise uh, moving as, as best as we can despite the financial impact and obviously the requirement to spend a lot of money on COVID management. Uh, you know, Cancer research still has to keep rolling along too. Okay. Lots to think about there. Thank you so much, Conrad Etter. Dr. Stephen Gallinger, and Dr. Aaron Schimmer. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Uh, Bye-bye. Okay, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about those new variants. We're going to take your calls and your questions. What should you be doing to protect yourself? Uh, on Monday, we were talking about this whole business about maybe we need to wear two masks. We've had advice to wear a a cloth mask with two layers plus a filter. Uh, Are you stocked up on all this stuff? Are you on board with it? And uh, also, if you have children or grandchildren, they're going back to school. What do you think? Do we have to do more? We'll have that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, we learned that kids are going back to school Monday in many parts of the province and a week later in hot zones like Toronto and Peel. And this is we are seeing evidence that the new, more contagious variants have begun to circulate here. 66 people have now died at the Roberta Place nursing home where there were confirmed cases of the UK variant and health officials have confirmed a case of a person infected with the South African variant in Peel region. And we've seen reports that these mutated versions spread after much shorter contact than the original. So what can we do to keep safe? Are you changing anything that you do? Uh, are you cutting back even further on on contacts? What about kids going back to school? Does that worry you? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now we are going to Dr. Andrew MacArthur, an associate professor at the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University, and Dr. Samantha Hill, President of the Ontario Medical Association. Hello, and thanks for being with us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's begin with Dr. Hill. Um, Does the fact that these new variants are around, is that changing anything in the way family docs are doing things? It doesn't really change much in how family doctors are doing things. The risk with the variants is simply that they may, they are definitely seem to be more transmissible, so more contagious, and they may be more virulent or more dangerous, but we don't know that for sure yet. The same precautions that you took for your basic wild type COVID-19 are still applicable for the other viruses. The challenge with the new virus virus variants, excuse me, is more about public health and public control because with a little bit of increase in transmission, that exponential curve that puts us all at risk very rapidly becomes very important. Well, exactly. It's been explained to me that even if it's uh, not uh, more dangerous or more deadly, if there are more people being infected, then more of them will have very bad outcomes, Dr. MacArthur. Yeah, so it is an issue that, you know, it's not clear whether it's any more dangerous. The UK did see higher deaths, but they were overwhelmed. So you get more deaths with an overwhelmed hospital system. And so that's our concern with more infection, more cases, more people in the hospital, more people in the ICU and more deaths. So uh, we're starting to hear different kinds of advice like double mask. Uh, Dr. MacArthur, do you have a view on that? So, you know, uh, what was just mentioned is absolutely correct. The, the techniques we've been using are appropriate. It's when you can't keep physically distance, when you have to share space that uh, you need good ventilation. Because it's more infective, uh, it takes less droplets possibly to infect you. So double masking means less droplet uh, transfer if you have to be close to someone. But really the number one way to help with this is to stick with what we're doing. Keep your physical distance, mask appropriately. Don't have a super pop already with your family on the weekend. The chances of infection just went up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Hill, are you worried about Super Bowl parties? I, you know, I am worried about Super Bowl parties as well as a variety of other things. The Ontario public and probably the public worldwide is tired of COVID. They're tired of the precautions they've had to take for the last year and how it's affected them personally and fiscally and socially. And it seems like every time we see a light on the horizon, like the vaccine, there's also a little bit of a step backwards like these variants. And so I think people are coming to their limits as far as their capacity to continue to follow the rules we've asked them to follow. We certainly haven't seen as many social programs and policies put into place as we would have liked to be able to facilitate that for many people. And so with the increased transmission of these new viruses or these new variants, exactly as Dr. MacArthur said, we run the risk again of overwhelming our healthcare system. And that's when we see a real dramatic rise in adverse events from the virus and from everything else. 
Okay, I'd like to give the numbers out again. Uh, people, are you tired of all of this? Uh, are you going to do anything for the Super Bowl on Sunday or anything else? And what do you make of kids going back to school? Does that worry you? I talk to a lot of people here who uh, don't leave their houses much, so they are the ones who are compliant. But what do you folks make? of that. If you just keep doing what you're doing, uh, I guess that will keep you safe. But we're also hearing about delays in the vaccine rollout. So uh, it is becoming much more difficult. So I would like to hear from you. Are you changing anything that you're doing? Uh, or are you worried? 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740-4740. I'm talking to Dr. Samantha Hill, President of the Ontario Medical Association, and Dr. Andrew MacArthur, Associate Professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster. And uh, Dr. MacArthur, uh, I'm, I'm curious about the timing of when we see a, an increase in cases as a result of some event, because here we are, we're just starting to see these variants here, but everybody, every talk is about loosening up. We're getting schools opening and there's talk about stores being able to open. What do you think of that? Yeah, we can't underestimate, you know, the harm that having things closed does. So you know, it's a very important issue. Um, but we can't do it all at once. That would happen in the UK. Too much was open too fast when these variants came and they got overwhelmed. The modeling from the Ontario modeling table with opening schools shows that there'll be only a slight uh, increase even with uh, these UK variants. In other words, if we keep doing what we're doing and just open the schools, this is really not a great concern. The bigger concern is if we rush to open other sectors of our economy, uh, it has to be done carefully. The game did just change. This this virus, you know, it feels like it's even to us and scientists that it intends to give no quarter till we get max vaccination, which means we are asking a lot of everybody and we're asking again for this higher level of vigilance. Uh, I really don't want to see a third wave in Ontario before we hit mass vaccination. But if we rush opening and don't do it based on scientific evidence, we could be under threat of a third wave. Dr. Hill, what do you think when you look at what's happening in other provinces? I'm looking at Quebec. So on the one hand, they put in a curfew. I don't know if that's uh, and they're going to keep their curfew, but they are going to open stores. Uh, should we just be kind of watching them and seeing what, what the impact there is? So it's a great question. And I'm very relieved to know that we have public health experts who are actually looking at all of that information. So they're used to looking at the meta-analysis as opposed to the day-to-day of a given patient. And they're looking at the social effects of the lockdown as well as economic effects, because we know that that has an effect on health as well. And there have been a lot of different ways that different countries and different provinces have done things. It's important to realize that you can't look at any one aspect in isolation. When, let's say, we talk about Israel opening up more rapidly, they also were able to vaccinate their entire population much more rapidly. Um, or you can talk about places that are far less populated than some of our Canadian areas, maybe being able to get away with certain things more than we can. So it really is a question, as Dr. MacArthur said, of taking small, finite decisions, waiting to see what the result of those decisions are, and then making the next step. We can't do it all at once, and we have to prioritize what we think the most important things to start with. And I think schools make sense. We know that our children are really suffering. They're not just suffering from um, a learning point of view, because I think most kids will catch up. They're suffering from a social and mental health point of view, and that's going to take a lot more time to recover from. What about the new travel restrictions? There are some people who say, great. There are other people who say it's kind of window dressing. So the various levels of government involved can look like they're doing something, Dr. MacArthur. So the key thing you you want with variants of concern is you want to drive them out of your community. Uh, And we do a search and destroy. When we find them, we do intensive contact tracing to make sure it's not transmitting any further. It's really hard to succeed at that when numbers are high. So if Ontario keeps driving the numbers down, we get into a workable scenario where we can do search and destroy. 
but that would be undermined by constantly reseeding our population with these variants. It's not that we should close borders, but that we should have proper screening and isolation at those borders to make sure we're not reintroducing these variants. And there will be other variants. It's simply a, a, a time and numbers, so others will occur. Um, but right now, the biggest uh, impact is to drive the numbers down so we can do search and destroy and drive them out of our communities and then very carefully monitor what happens at our borders. Okay, we have got to take another break. Let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about the new variants. We're talking about the new situation. Schools are going to begin to open up. Most people think that's a good thing. We're also seeing these new travel restrictions. People have to take a test when they land and uh, hasn't started yet, but pretty soon they're going to have to self-isolate for three days in a government-restricted hotel at a cost of $2,000. Obviously, that's meant to be a deterrent. So uh, if you have anything to say or questions, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And when we come back, we are going to talk about testing and more testing when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I am talking to Dr. Samantha Hill and Dr. Andrew MacArthur about these new variants of COVID-19 and what we should be doing to protect ourselves. Uh, The good news is they're saying basically keep doing what you're doing. We've uh, along the way heard of advice, double masking. Um, Teresa Tam has said, uh, you know, those cloth masks, make sure they're good ones with two layers of fabric and uh, a little pocket for a filter. I know that uh, I just got my first ever filters the other day. So um, it is scary, I have to say. We heard news about another delayment a delay in the shipment of vaccines. We don't have exact numbers on that, but it is going to delay getting your shot here in Ontario. Of that, there is no question. For a long time, we've also heard promises, um, more testing. And finally, I think those rapid tests are being deployed. Dr. MacArthur, um, is, is that going to uh, help us? Absolutely. Uh, rapid testing, you know, as, as Dr. Hill said, you know, we want to take small steps and we want to learn from each step. And one of the best ways to learn is testing capacity. So as we open schools, as we look at, you know, people coming on the airport or border crossing, as we try to open other sectors of the economy, the ability to rapid test and see how well it's doing and, and whether transmission is occurring allows us to adapt rapidly. Dr. Hill, are we testing or planning to test enough? So we are testing, but we obviously still need to do better, um, both with respect to the widespread universal rapid access testing that probably needs to be available at schools, but also with respect to the variants. Um, in our news conference yesterday, Dr. Evans discussed it very clearly, and he said that we need to track variants better in order to detect their emergence. The seek and destroy option only starts with the detection, and if we can't detect it, then we don't know where to seek and destroy. We need to build up the capacity within our own labs to be able to screen for these variants and to be able to ramp it up to a a value and a number that allows us to try and open up as generously as we can while staying safe. You know, I I heard something very scary yesterday. We were talking uh, about Roberta Place, and there's a a proposed class action there. And what the lawyers found, I had been under the impression that they knew that it was the variant that ripped through that nursing home. But I was told that they found that out for the first few cases, and then they stopped testing. And I think that's pretty scary. Is it not, Dr. MacArthur? Shouldn't we be testing? To know. Well, you know, there's two layers of tests. There's a test that is cheap and quick and reliable that tells you on whether you are infected with coronavirus. It, the, the genomic test to figure out you, if you have the variant is a different ballgame and considerably more expensive. 
It is a quirk of the UK variant in that it's a little easier to find than, say, the Brazilian or the South African. Um, but to say they weren't testing is not correct. They, they're routinely testing in, in a facility like that. But really what this comes down to is what we do in long-term care. If you do not have good practice in long-term care of taking care of your staff and your patients, it doesn't matter which variant gets in the door. Uh, so that's really the fundamental issue here. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I did hear the comment about mental health of children and the need to reopen the schools. Uh, That being said, I did see um, a report today in the Star that 70% of the schools are in the highest risk areas, particularly in the GTA, York Region, etc. And from the beginning, I think I'm saying in so has the program that we're not doing nearly enough adequate testing uh, in the schools and the protection for students and teachers in the schools themselves with regard to ventilation and distancing, simply not there. So I'm very concerned with the variants and what the reopening schools plan for the 16th and the GTA is going to have on the uh, general population. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, Dr. Hill, I mean, I see a lot of things that say, oh, schools uh, are not that big a vector of transmission. Can you say anything to uh, reassure Dennis? Well, what I can say is that schools tend to be a reflection of their communities rather than super spreaders within their communities. And we've seen that from the last round over the last year of COVID. There was a thought early on that children would act as super spreaders and spread it within the schools and then out to their communities. We haven't seen a lot of that happening, in part probably because teachers and students have been doing their due diligence about wearing their masks and keeping their distance and washing their hands and all of those good things that we know work. The thing is, is that we don't have any perfect choices right now, and that's what makes everything hard. There absolutely is a risk to reopening schools, but there's also a risk to keeping the schools closed. There absolutely is a risk to reopening stores, but there's also a risk to keeping the stores closed. And if this was a one-week event, we could all get behind. We'll shut down. We'll hibernate in our houses for a week, and we'll come out at the end of the week, and we'll go back to real life. But it's a year now, and there have been real mental health consequences and physical health consequences, not just economic and fiscal, but unidentified and untreated cancers and heart attacks because people are afraid to go seek help. And we need to try and weigh all of that at the same time. And that's why I keep saying I'm so glad that we have the amazing public health experts that we do in Canada, because that's exactly what they do when they look at this data. Okay, let's hear from Vasa in Streetsville. Hello, Vasa. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I am following exactly what they say. I've got my double-layer mask. I've put the filter in. And the other day, just before I entered my no-frill store, I popped into the dollar store, and they had face shields. So I put that layer on top, too. So as I'm shopping, I see two store employees working, and one, very, she was very animated, talking to the other one. And I looked and took a second look. She had no mask, no shield. So I asked her, I said, excuse me, do you work here? Yes. I said, and you don't wear a mask? She says, I'm medically exempt. I said, not even a face shield? No. I, I was floored. Because she's talking to the other employee, very excited about it, some new product, I think it was. So I went off. I couldn't believe it. And then I saw the store owner, the lady. I kind of know her now. And I told her about it. She said, well, I can't fire her. I said, okay, but why is she out on the floor talking? And we know that when you speak, the spittle comes out. And we're told to do all these things, and an employee doesn't have to do it. I said, can you keep her in the back? She says, oh, I'll have a talk with her. Uh, okay, boss, I, th- I think that uh, when it comes to this, what we all have to do is that you, if you encounter a situation that makes you uncomfortable, walk away. Uh, the, but um, I, thanks for telling us about it. Well, can they not 
ask her to work in the back, well, uh, away from the general public? Um, probably she could if she wanted to. Um, okay. Vasa, I'm going to let the doctors uh, answer that. Okay. okay. Uh, who wants to take that? I'll, I'll take first stab at it, Libby, and then I'll turn it over to Dr. MacArthur. I'm going to say that I think you hit it uh, right on the nose. The best thing to do is all of the things that your caller already said they were doing. Took all the appropriate precautions to protect herself. And then when she saw this happening, she kept a, a safe distance and tried to stay away. We know that there are a lot of reasons why people come into work when maybe they shouldn't, um, including the lack of sick days and uh, the lack of job security. I try not to judge people who aren't wearing their masks. It's really hard right now. We're all at the edge of our patients, and it's very easy to flip into judgmental thoughts and thinking that people can't possibly have a good reason. But there are some very valid reasons for not wearing a mask. They're few and far between, but there are some, and they include things like um, really horrendous traumatic experiences. And so what our caller heard as maybe arrogance or flippancy may have been defensiveness. We just don't know other people's story. So we do what we have to do to protect ourselves and we hope everyone else is doing the same. Well, yeah. And, and look at uh, the, the fact is that there are a lot of people who are just breaking the rules and uh, they can say, I have a medical exemption. They can say whatever they want, but uh, you know, uh, short of, getting into a big fight every time. It's it's one of those situations where you might have to just walk away uh, from some place that you, you know, made a special plan to go to a grocery store. I've heard from callers who've gone to big box stores and they don't like what they see there and they leave. Uh, Dr. MacArthur? Yeah, I'm not going to deny that there's people that, you know, are just willfully not compliant, but... Uh, I think compassion is important. This pandemic does not hit all equally. And for some of us, we might say, well, cases down to 500 a day is very manageable. We should open everything up. But there are people with, who are immunocompromised. What that means is unworkable, and they've been trapped in their homes since March. Because, you know, even a low risk is too much risk for them. So it is complex. Uh, I agree it's frustrating uh, You know, when you see things that it don't look compliant. But uh, we're all frustrated. We're all tired. But compassion is an important thing. There's not always a simple answer. Okay, uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, Dr. Hill, what would you like to leave us with? You know, I'd like to leave everyone with a note of gratitude and, and positivity. It's been a really long year, and we all know that. But we are in a situation of a modern miracle, really, where there is a vaccine, a vaccine that might have otherwise taken us two, three, four years to come up with. And we were able to get it within a year from multiple different suppliers because of how the scientific community cross-collaborated and because of how bureaucracy was stripped away to facilitate the actual work and the safetyness being done. That being said, we need to keep doing all of the things that we've done that have kept us safe for this long. And so I reiterate, if you're not sure what's true, reach out to your family doctor. If you want to get information about your local community, reach out to your public health unit. They all have websites and they all have newsletters. Figure out what's going on in your community because it's different from one side to another. And then do the things that you need to do personally at a very individual level. You wash your hands, you wear your mask, you stay away, and you stay indoors in your own host, in your own bubble, unless you need to. We're coming up on the end line, people. The light is there. We can see it. We're getting there. We just need to get through this next big push. Hopefully, vaccines will come in and we'll be able to, at the very least, get all of our elderly vaccinated rapidly. And then summer will come again, and it'll be just a little bit easier again. Okay, and uh, I'm afraid we are totally at the end of the line here. So, Dr. Andrew MacArthur will give you the final word next time. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Andrew McCarthy, Dr. Samantha Hill. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.